Hey, Kasha. Hey, James. Hey, listeners. We're two of the producers here at The Stakes, and we're snowed in here in New York City. We're stepping in for Holly and Julian to bring you the show this week. Yep, James and I are in a studio in a snow globe right now, basically, but the podcast must go on. This week we're doing something a little differently. So, uh, Kasha, what are we doing? We're doing a feature interview. Jamil Smith, our senior national correspondent, sat down this week with Dean Obadala, the host of an eponymous Sirius XM radio show. You might have seen him as Dean of Comedy on Twitter because he's also a comedian. He had a 2012 documentary called The Muslims Are Coming, where he went on tour through the heartland of America with other Muslim comedians. Al-Qaeda claims responsibility for things they could have never done. Do you know the eclipse? We did it for Allah. The goal of the tour is to go out the middle of America using comedy, reaching out to people beyond our community. So Jamil and Dean are both old hands in the world of politics coverage, and they sat down this week to talk about, of course, the Muslim ban, but also their thoughts on the first weeks of Trump's America and kind of what to make of it. So here they are, Dean Obidala and MTV News' Jamil Smith. But is it racist to fear an entire religious group? There is an unbelievable hatred of us. In, in Islam itself? Uh, you're going to have to figure that out. President Trump speaking about his controversial executive order, one that bars 134 million people from seven Muslim-majority countries from coming to the United States. You know, if you were a Christian in Syria, it was impossible, very, very, at least very, very tough to get into the United States. If you were a Muslim, you could come in. Is that true? No, it's not. Let's look at the numbers. Hundreds swarmed the arrivals terminal at SFO today. In fact, so many people showed up, the protests had to move outside. You see it at the airport, you see it all over. It's working out very nicely. The idea that people have protested every step of, of candidate Trump, president-elect Trump, nominee Trump, president Trump, does it mean that the executive order and, and its implementation, its rollout, could have been done differently. It means that people will always protest, especially if they're underinformed. You could not imagine a more dramatic way to end the week. A constitutional showdown on one side, a federal district court judge in Washington state. On the other side, the White House. And in the middle, all the people affected by President Trump's uh, temporary uh, pause on uh, travel to the U.S., the executive order. What could be a stunning blow to President Trump's travel ban? A federal judge at this hour granting a Washington attorney general's request to immediately halt President Trump's executive order on immigration nationwide. Not everybody may like this uh, decision. I'm certain the president will not like this decision. Uh, but it is his job, it is his responsibility, it is his obligation as our president to honor, and I'll make sure he does. Dean, there is not a whole lot that is funny about any of this. Now, we're basically in week three of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. are, are you finding anything to laugh at? I am, but it's, it is much more challenging. Like during George W. Bush, it was the golden years for comedians because... He gave his material first unintentionally, 
from the way he pronounced things, the mangle things, almost choking on a pretzel. There was so much there with right, that guy. Right, the malaprops. Right, everything. But he was not scary to us. That's the difference. Right. George W. Bush did not, I wasn't fearful for America and the fabric of this country. Yes, yeah, some real u- uber left people probably were, but mainstream left people like me were like, hey, he's entertaining. I wish a Democrat had won, but I'm not worried about the future of the republic. Right. You're that, not worried about like the democratic project continuing. Right, right. <laughs> and Donald Trump has made us keenly aware that democracy is much more fragile than many of us thought. So mm-hmm. I think comedy is a form of resistance. I think it's an important form, especially because we know Donald Trump doesn't like it because he lashed it out against SNL. Because I've been to the Middle East for shows. There you can't make fun of the leaders. Donald Trump understands why. Because if you're laughing at a leader, they're no longer scary. And Trump doesn't want that. He needs to be a scary, sinister figure. So it's harder. But yeah, we are. I'm doing jokes. A lot of us are doing jokes. They're coming from a dark place. I mean, I've done jokes about internment camps. I look at the upside. I'm sure there'll be free Wi-Fi. So we have that going for us. (laughs) You know, you try to deal with... Or like how the hubris of him is like, he's expanding his hotel chain by three times the size. Even Saddam Hussein didn't have a hotel chain. I mean, like, they're, they're addicted, but there's no Hussein Hilton's going on. But Donald Trump has just taken the, this game to another level where there is truly a palpable fear in not just the Muslim community, my community, but many communities in America now. Now, speaking of that, I, I know you did the film The Muslims Are Coming. Yeah. And this was uh, several years ago. I, you know, first of all, would you do a project like that in Trump's America? I mean, do do yeah. Muslims need to have a comedy tour through this country? Yeah, but I actually would be more worried for our safety than I was then, because many people said, "Are you worried about your security?" I'm like, "No, we're Americans, so we're going to Georgia and Tennessee and Mississippi." You know, people were fine. People, we did free comedy shows. Me and my friend Again Farsad did it. We did all free shows. People came and visited us. We did set up tables on the streets of the South, ask a Muslim a question. People came up. They had questions. It was fine. Right. That that was 2011 and early 12. Times have changed dramatically since then. I mean, ISIS was not even created then. We didn't even know ISIS. It was sort of Al-Qaeda was on the retreat. The biggest thing was the Ground Zero Mosque, which was one of the reasons we did the tour. Now I I think there would be much more anger. I think the Trump supporters, some of them are emboldened to a point of they already have committed violence. Just yesterday, a man was sentenced to 30 years in prison in Florida, self-professed Trump supporter. I'm not speculating. He was self-professed, burned down a mosque in Orlando, Florida. Right. So you have a spike in violence against our community that we haven't seen since right after 9-11. So I'd be fearful, but I think actually we're going to try to do something. We're not sure what it's going to be. Me and Nagin, we're percolating different ideas, but I think we're going to do something. Now, you wrote recently in the Daily Beast about a case of, you know, a white Christian minister mm-hmm. who is now on trial mm-hmm. for a terrorist plot mm-hmm. against Muslims. Yeah. That seems like the reverse of what we normally hear about in the media. Well, that's exactly why I wrote the article. I mean, the I, and I've written about this man, Robert Dargett, two or three other times, and, and I begged media outlets to cover him in the past. But the answers I get from even my friends, even probably mutual friends of ours, frankly, who are producers mm-hmm. saying, it's just not a national story. And I go, well, if he was Muslim plotting to kill Christians, would that be a national story? And they, they pause and go, not even understanding what I'm getting at. They go, yeah, probably would be. As if, as not even understanding my, my point was, so if a, Christian, a self-professed Christian minister doing nothing in accordance with Christianity, this is not a Christian radical right. terrorist. He's a radical who's a terrorist who's claiming it has to do with Christianity, saying he plotted his terror attack to, for, to show his commitment to God, according to the FBI and the pleadings that I read. He plotted with 
weapons, machetes, M4 rifle, explosives. Is going to upstate New York, Islamabad, which is primarily an African-American Muslim community founded in the 1980s because they just wanted out of New York, these people. They're not immigrant Muslims. They're all African-American Muslims. I'm in touch with them. I know some of them up there who are a target of, a, of plot after plot because Fox News for years has lied and said they are a Muslim training ground for terrorism. And the police have continually said that's just not true. Fox News, even within a few years ago, kept saying the same thing. So you have a guy like Robert Dargard watch Fox News, hear that there's Muslim terrorist camp in upstate New York. He gathers his supplies and is going to go up there to try to kill them. Thankfully, the FBI stopped him. He's on trial now in Tennessee in a federal district court. And the media is not covering the trial whatsoever. And the irony is Donald Trump, on the very day the trial began, the day Donald Trump said these terrorist attacks by Muslims are not being reported by the media. Well, he was partly right. Terror attacks aren't, but the ones against Muslims, not the ones by Muslims. Right. There's a fundamental misunderstanding I see in Donald Trump's approach to terrorism. Let's, for just a moment, say that he's actually trying to stop it. Okay. Okay. So if he's actually trying to stop terrorism in America, wouldn't you look to stopping the radicalization of people who are already here. I mean, look at Orlando, San Bernardino. Mm-hmm. Um, look at Charleston. You know, all these different terror attacks. Robert Deere at the Colorado Planned Parenthood. These are people who are Americans mm-hmm. or are American residents radicalized here. Well, we don't know what Donald Trump's really about other than we can be certain he's about fear-mongering for political gain. You can't deny that. I mean, it went down his escalator and announced his candidacy demonizing Mexicans at Mexico sending rapists. And it began from there. So when you have the next Dylan Roof, who's a terrorist? And why the media didn't call him a terrorist is beyond me. I begged them to. I wrote about it. Mm-hmm. When you have a political agenda... Right. If you have a political agenda to start a race war and you execute nine people, including a sitting state senator, that's terrorism. That's under... I'm a former lawyer. On the definition of domestic terrorism, it fulfills it. But they didn't want to call him that for whatever reason. You have the guy who went to Colorado Springs in the Planned Parenthood Clinic. Mm -hmm. You have Glennon Scott Crawford, a man nobody knows his name, unfortunately, except I've written about him countless times. December, sentenced to 30 years to life. Why? He was building a radioactive weapon of mass destruction to kill Muslims in New York State. This this man was an electrical engineer who was in the Klan, a U.S. Navy veteran, well-versed in technology. He was going to sustain, he was going to fulfill his dream yeah, he was of using a dirty this. bomb to kill Muslims in New York, finding a Muslim community to kill them. 30 years to life in December in federal court. That gets no press. I was on CNN yesterday, and one of the right-wing guys, actually a reasonable guy, said, well, we're really worried about the dirty bomb. I go, you're right, like Glennon Scott Crawford, and he had no idea what I was talking about. I go, you don't know who it is because the media doesn't report it. He wanted to build a dirty bomb, but to kill Muslims, that gets no press coverage. We, we The media is playing a role in allowing Trump to lie about the only terrorism is from Muslims because they don't ca- cover people who are not Muslims committing terrorism and that's the way the same gusto or zeal. Right. And they don't use the term terrorist unless you're a Muslim. Right. And I mean, you know, they, that allows people to then, you know, not only consider things that actually are terrorism to be just sort of lone wolves who are right. who are lost. And, you know, they're really nice and quiet guys. Yeah. We just didn't see it coming. And then that you have, uh, you know, what we saw yesterday with, with Sean Spicer, the press secretary, trying to loop in Atlanta with San Bernardino and Orlando as attacks that justify this ban somehow. Atlanta in 96 was perpetrated by a white domestic terrorist. Right, absolutely. A, a man who was animated by his own Christ, his view of Christianity, which is just as pathetic and horrible and wrong as those who think they're doing it for ISIS or doing it for Islam. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the legal aspects of the ban. Sure. Okay, so... Legally speaking, mm-hmm. why is it faulty? 
Well, here's the reality. Again, as a lawyer, I'll be blunt. The president does have great discretion in immigration policy, and there's a statute that gives him this power. He may prevail ultimately on this. If, and if Donald Trump had not said during the campaign, Islam hates us, and Rudy Giuliani did not say, I, Trump wanted to do a Muslim ban, he told me how to make it legal, right. and if Trump had not called for a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims, and just said, I've identified these seven countries as being the source of terrorism, and we need to do a ban for 90 days or 120 days to figure things out, I think most Americans would be like, well, that sounds reasonable. But we know where it's coming from. So, mm-hmm. and, and I have to be really honest, President Obama's extreme vetting that he did for Muslims kept many Muslims out of the country. Even Muslim Americans were subject to extreme vetting at the airports. Right. And my friends in Muslim American organizations had advocated on their behalf and were successful often. The difference is President Obama didn't get on a bully pulpit and demonize Muslims while doing it. They mm-hmm. did it based on their assessment of what was going on in certain countries targeting to keep us safe. The difference is Donald Trump gets on a pulpit to tell everyone Muslims are so bad, we have to keep millions out of these seven countries. And to us, this is day. This is step one of a complete and total Muslim ban, which is what he said he wanted to do. Like, we're not making it. Like, people are like, right. why do you keep saying that? I'm like, he told me he wanted to ban Muslims. Now he's doing it. I'm the crazy guy for saying it's a Muslim ban. It's not coming out of thin air, you know? <laughs> we're not making this up. Like, he said he, like it's Like, if he had never said it, I'm like, you want to ban Muslims. What's wrong with you? When the guy says, I want to ban Muslims, and then he starts banning Muslims, like, he's doing, he said he wants to build a wall. He's trying to do that. He said he wants to repeal Obamacare. He's doing that. He wants to ban Muslims. That's his third big thing. He's trying to do it. Why are they being PC? Just come out and say, it's a Muslim ban. It's step one. Right. Right, right, and, uh, and and why why play with language? That's that's one of the things I've noticed, you know, in early days of this administration is how clumsy they are with playing with language. I mean, look, if you you made all you spent a year and a half making these promises, right. and then you're actually enacting the promises, and now you're dancing around the language. What do you what do you make of the rhetoric of the early days of the Trump administration? I, I think you're, it's well put when you say clumsy. I don't think I in my heart I think Trump got luckier in the primaries and in the general than election than he thought. I think he just Mm. spoke his mind and figured, hey, it's successful. If it works, it works. I don't think there was a big master plan. I think though as president, you're held to a higher standard. So every tweet is analyzed differently, much more in depth. What do you mean by this? Now we have Sean Spicer who's got to answer the questions because before Trump could avoid us, they can't. Or Kellyanne Conway has to answer the questions. You know, I'm amazed at how often Trump could just lie and it doesn't matter. And Mm. even Kellyanne Conway, the Bowling Green Massacre, saying yeah. there say it three times but at least yesterday she did say it was a mistake and she actually apologized on CNN for it that's something Trump would not do Trump would not apologize for something like that um this there's a great deal of concern by many communities and I think it's well founded with this administration I think we we I I think they're going to try to criminalize Islam and the practice of it in this country that's the next step we're not sure how I have an idea but Steve Bannon who's his right-hand man who was running Breitbart and he gave a it was a platform for the most anti-Muslim bigots in America. Even Gertz Wilder, a Dutch parliament member who hates Muslims, they gave a platform to write horrible articles saying it's Judeo-Christian war versus Islam, don't let Muslims in your country. Articles that the Nazis may have blushed at, written about Jews in the 1930s. I mean, they would have mm-hmm. been like, this is a little over the top. Like This stuff was all on Breitbart. And Steve Bannon is there whispering in Donald Trump's ear, I think we're going to see a criminalization of, of Islam in the country on some level. What do you think that would look like? Two things. I think one is no longer standing up for us when we have mosque controversies. Obama's Department of Justice went out of their way to sue municipalities when they would ban 
a new mosque, even though it conformed with all the regulations, it was anti-Muslim bigotry. They would sue under the it's the Rulapa. It's basically the the land use provisions that deal with religious use of your land. So okay. you're, you're guaranteed everyone, Christians, Muslims, any Christian, any faith, you're guaranteed the right to develop a place of worship if you can form with whatever regulations are in those municipalities around the country. Right. As long as you're paying, you know, paying heed to the laws of that municipality, you right. can build that space for right. worship. Okay. So what would happen? Some municipalities would say, no, we're not going to do it. They would make up things. They would add brand new requirements. Like now you need 200 parking spaces. Like why? You only wanted 50 before of the church next door. Literally this kind of stuff happened. It, it reminds they me of doing... like abortion laws for clinics in, yeah. in, Texas, in states like Texas. So you have that. So the department, and you know, Loretta Lynch, I was at a dinner she spoke at Muslim Advocates a year and a half ago and said to the Muslim community, you're not alone. She goes, I'm your attorney general. I'm for the whole country, but you're not alone. We just had a meeting, a Muslim and Jewish group I'm part of, with a department of, department member of the DOJ, a high-ranking guy. And I said it to him about Loretta Lynch. And he said to me, well, we're on nobody's side. We're on the side of law, which was stunning to me because I had said, she said she was on our side. Will you say the same thing to us? He goes, we're on no one's side. We're on the side of law. Well, that, that's a coded message for we're not on your side. We're not going to be there for you. Right. That's one. The second is this new thing trying to call the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist group, um, which is, I don't know anything about the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't know anyone in America who's part of it. There is a Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt that mm-hmm. some can say are terrorists or they were terrorists and not anymore. There may be three guys in a house. They may call themselves right. that. <laughs> well, that's, I think under the Trump administration, if two Muslims are talking, we're the Muslim Brotherhood. So they want to they make it criminalize and call it a terrorist group. That's fine. If they're just like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they're not. What they also claim then is CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, the two biggest Muslim groups, they go, they're all tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. So that means most Muslims, we've all had some connection with those groups, we're all somehow tied to terrorist groups by this. And this is the way, uh, the same way that they would demonize Martin Luther King and organizations to have equality for African Americans who just wanted to vote. Mm-hmm. Simply wanted to sit at the counter and said, these guys are the same as terrorists. We have to stop them. You know, Jeff Sessions epitomized that in today's world. Right. Greta Scott King's letter said it perfectly in her statement to the, to the Senate in 1986 when he was trying to be a federal judge. It's the same stuff with us. It's the same playbook. Take away our organizations that give us power so you leave us on our own. And then without being organized, we don't have an input. Yeah. I mean, I, that leads me back to the question of safety then. Yeah. Um, I know people, there's some people who I know who are taking classes uh, to become, you know, bystander, you know, uh, help, I guess, for Muslims who are living in cities here like New York. So like, hey, if you need, you know, if a Muslim neighbor needs, you know, someone to I guess, sit next to them on the train so they don't get harassed or they don't get her, her job pulled off. The very fact that people have to think about something like this is, is horrifying. But what things can people do who are not Muslim that they can be better allies or be more efficient allies in terms of, you know, using their energy, using their money, using their time? I think number one is speaking out. There's a quote, I'll slightly paraphrase it by Martin Luther King, that's always inspired me in my entire adult life. He said, the greatest tragedy isn't the strident clamor of the bad people. It's the appalling silence of the good people. If you're a good person, speak out. If it's about Muslims, if it's LGBT, our Jewish brothers and sisters, African-Americans, Latinos, whatever community, speak out. If you're a good person, look in your soul and stand up and say, this is wrong. It could be going to a protest. It could be speaking out with your bunch of friends and some friend is demonizing some minority community. You go, that's just wrong, buddy. Just tell them. Sometimes right. people never hear that. Because they're not going to say that in front of us. You that, know? Right. Well, actually, they may say it in front of you because they may not like think you're Muslim. Right. <laughs> I, I, I get that. So you have, 
So speaking out, if we're alone, we're in big trouble. As a broader question, just how sick do you get of just having to prove that you're human? I mean, it's just it's just tiring. I know it's tiring for me just being black in America. Right. Um, I could imagine, especially given the political focus on your community right now, how tiring it must be for you. Yeah, on some levels, it is. Thankfully, I think we're a resilient community because we've been through a lot. It hasn't been great. We loved President Obama, but it wasn't great during his term, not because of him, because of the haters coming after us. We're used to being demonized and having a rally. We've gotten more organized. There's more Muslims in the media now, more Muslims in politics, more interfaith work, so we have more allies standing with us. So I'm optimistic at the end of the day mm-hmm. we'll come through this, but it's going to be very hard. Yeah. And there's a palpable fear, especially among parents for their children, a big spike in bullying at schools. There was a California study, I wrote about it, 55% of Muslim students said they've been bullied which for their faith, mm. which means that's the average daily occurrence at 55%. Worst part, 20% are bullied by their teachers. Their teachers mocking them, saying jokes like, hey, is that a bomb in your backpack, Muhammad, and that kind of stuff in front of classmates, trying to get a cheap laugh, but then emboldening the other students to mock that Muslim student as well. Women with hijabs have been on the front line. They've been getting attacked the most. Yeah. You know, we've had mosques in Texas, two burned down the last month. It's a trying time. I mean, there's, it's an emotional time for our community. And I do my best to make our Muslim brothers and sisters understand that they're part of this country. They're part of the fabric of this nation. They're not less than American because of their faith. Never give in to the Trump supporters out there or Trump himself who will paint us in this horrible brush. Uh, because that's dangerous. And that when you want to counter mm-hmm. radicalization, marginalization can lead to alienation, can lead to radicalization. Right. And that's the process. So if you allow Muslim Americans to feel like they're truly hated and they you're hated in your own country by your president, then the ISIS sales pitch works much more effectively. Because you're like, they can say, here's your president saying these things about you. Right. Why won't you join us or kill these other people who hate you? ISIS is loving this. Of course. They're calling it the blessed ban. You know, and, and you see how Iran is is responding to his provocations. I mean, I'm not I'm not depending upon at this point any. I don't have any faith in the Republican Party to no. stop him or to limit uh, his 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 outbursts or even his power. Frankly, so I'm just hopeful, frankly, that there will be enough resistance to those ideas because first of all not only to keep people physically safe right. from attacks and from you know people who may become radicalized but also just from these poisonous ideas uh, i agree with you and it's the ideas that are going to have a legacy far beyond donald trump and it's about i mean the one thing i learned from this election more people are not phased or upset with outright hatred that they're not concerned about mm-hmm. racism and bigotry towards muslims and shaming victims of sexual assault, like the women who came forward and said, Donald Trump assaulted me. And he said, you're liars. And the crowd cheered. Yes, they're liars. And demonization of my community, the spike in anti-Semitism online from Trump supporters and Trump refused to denounce it. Mm -hmm. And still, people still voted for him. And I've talked to Trump supporters. They get upset when I label them in negative terms. And I go, how would you... Label yourself. How do you describe yourself? And I list the things. I go, are you not troubled by these things? I say in a nice way. And they go, well, I was troubled, but Hillary was horrible. So I said, okay, Hillary was horrible. You believe that, but still you can enable a person like this. You'd vote for a person. And they give you a million reasons about economics and stuff. And I don't believe 63 million are horrible people that voted for my. I just can't in my mind. No, I'm I'm likewise optimistic about the American Project. And I definitely 
as much as it is tempting to put all of them in one basket, it it's impossible. You know, but but the thing is, to me, it's not even about whether or not they're all racist. It's about making them accountable for what they have enabled. Yeah, and I don't know how you do that other than I'm hoping that they peel away. But the latest polls, while they show Trump with like a 40% approval rating, 90% though among Republicans. So they're still enabling. If that number gets down to 60% and stuff, all of a sudden you're like, these are the people we have to get. Mm Because right now the 10% that don't like him, they're the... The David Frums of the world. There are the, you know, even the Paul Ryans who are holding his nose, but in our heart, we know he doesn't like him. Or Mitt Romney's. Right. Those guys who really like, this is this is toxic. This is not what our party's about. We're about smaller government and lower taxes and states' rights and this kind of stuff where, or at least we're going to be bigots, we're going to do it by code. You know, like, we're not going <laughs> to do it like this. Who does this stuff? Come on. You know, so... I, I, when that number gets down, if he only has like a 60% approval rating among Republicans, those are the other people, like that other 30% who are new, grab right. them and let's stand up against Trump. The midterms are not that far. You know, Obama lost 63 House seats in 2010, his first midterm election. Right. Right now, the Republicans have a 47-seat advantage. It's not out of the question that the Democrats could get the House in 2018. If we consider this a presidential year, we go campaign in every state. If you don't, if you don't live in a swing state, go and campaign in a swing state. Take days off. If we get the House, investigations begin. Right. You know, and that changes everything. Indeed. Um, wanted to move on to one last, you know, sure. thing about sort of the, the Trump years. Um, they could be good for you comedically. Yeah. <laughs> eventually. I mean, eventually we may find more to laugh at. Eventually we may find um, more to ridicule, so on and so forth. Sure. Obviously, like you said, SNL is doing a great job with that. How do you how are you navigating this this terrain as a comedian? I'd say that it's a harder time because of the personal nature of this, because Donald Trump has come after my community personally. And the result is people I know are being attacked either physically or their place of worship are being attacked or they're being attacked online and trying to silence. So there's a different component. I am going, I still try to find the humor. I joke around about things about the Muslim ban and you deal with, you know, I perform at Muslim events and I go, who's Muslim? And people applaud. I'm like, in the time of Trump, you don't applaud. When someone asks, who's Muslim? <laughs> I, I'm, trying to prote- I'm trying to protect you, brothers, my sisters. I'm like, don't. You know, you try to have fun with how scary this might be. And I think ultimately right. comedy is a cathartic. I think it's empowering. I think it's important to laugh at things that scare you because I think it can help you. That You can fight that person more effectively. Yeah. But I'm telling jokes, but I'm, tell- I'm going to be honest. It's a hard time. And we're having more heckling than ever in the clubs. I just wrote about it for the Daily Beast last week. Mm-hmm. Trump supporters heckling us. We didn't have that during Bush. Because Trump lashed out against Senator Live, his supporters feel emboldened to lash out against comedians mm-hmm. in New York City comedy clubs. They're tourists, they're not New Yorkers doing this, Right. who are from red states or they're conservative and we make fun of Trump and they be yelling like, Trump, 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 or they yell at you or they come up after a show and go like, why do you have to be so tough on the president? Give him a chance, that kind of stuff. The last part's fine. You want to come out after a show. Yeah. But people, yeah. I don't, I bet you there are people who have rarely have ever heckled before now feel this visceral reaction to defend their beloved Donald Trump and even pre- stop comedians. It's happening in clubs in the city. Right. I, I interviewed a comedy club booker here in New York City who talked about stunning how this is happening. It's not like every show, but it's happening at a point with frequency that we never saw before. Because huh, I'm thinking about like how back in, say, the 60s and the 70s, you know, the comedy of uh, Richard Pryor, sure. for instance, Red Fox. Um, you know, interpreted, you know, painful aspects of the black experience through humor 
And I'm thinking like, you know, a similar renaissance is, is, is budding for Muslim comedians in I, this regard. I think, there, I think there is, and I think that there are people in the media who are intrigued by our point of view on this. And I think that's important. And that I hope that every Muslim comedian who gets to go on TV that, and talk about these issues will, will still be funny because we're just completely serious and angry. It's not helpful. But still have that op- use that platform to raise some of the serious points. Comedy can be the bridge to reach people who would never listen to a serious speech about a political issue, who want to come and laugh. You make them laugh and you inform them a little bit and they leave. And many, most Americans have never met a Muslim. That's what polls show. About 30% know a Muslim. That's why I begin my radio show every day saying, I'm Dean Obidal and I want to be your Muslim friend. Because <laughs> polls show if you know a Muslim, you have a 20% more positive view of Muslims. Unless that Muslim's a real jerk, then, well, then you yeah, want to I mean, like that. goes out the window. But besides that, it makes all, the same thing with... Every community, but Muslims have been quantified in a recent poll. People knew a Muslim, 20% more positive view of Islam and Muslims in general. That's why this is our time to step forward. We have to get in the media more. More of us have to run for office, get out there, tell our story, tell our narrative, and counter the lies and demonization out there by, by Trump. Well, I think maybe we should just go outside and start introducing ourselves to random people. Sure. What do you say? We did a hug a Muslim on that Muslims are coming. We did ask a Muslim a question. It's sincerely, it's the, I think, to me, it's the only thing that gives me hope, that my fellow Americans, if they get to talk to us, you become the exception. All right, not all Muslims are bad. You're the good guy. And it sounds ridiculous, but at least we start there with some of them. And hopefully it chips away till they're like, yeah, ISIS is the exception. It's no longer, I'm no longer the exception. ISIS is the exception to Muslims. That's the goal, to change the paradigm. Indeed. Dean, thanks a lot for joining thanks, us. Thanks, I appreciate it, brother. That was Jamil Smith, our senior national correspondent, and Dean Obidala. Dean has a show called The Dean Obidala Show on Sirius XM Radio. He's also a Daily Beast columnist, and you can find him on Twitter at Dean of Comedy. I'm Kasia Mihailovich. And I'm James T. Green. And those were the stakes. And did you know you can have this show personally delivered to you every time we release a new episode? I had no idea. (laughs) All you have to do, James, is search The Stakes. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we're available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tap subscribe. Boom. Day made. I should actually subscribe. I think I should subscribe to my own show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) While you're there, take a minute and leave us a review and a star rating. Five is good, if you were wondering. Also, you should tell your special life people about us. So you can send us a tweet, send a snap, or a gram. If you're listening at MTV Podcast, wherever, every little bit helps. And if you're curious about what else we make out here in Radioland, there's a full list of the shows at podcast.mtv.com. Are we on Snapchat? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, they can try. The Stakes is produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Get out there, take action, take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.